I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. On a cold winter's day, there was a crowd of people were standing outside the pet store, and they were looking in at the puppies. Who doesn't like to do that? And they were looking at these puppies, and it was a cold day, and there they were snuggling up to one another. And one woman laughed and said, look, what a delightful picture of brotherhood. Look at how those puppies are keeping each other warm. And the man next to her said, no, ma'am, they're not keeping each other warm. They're keeping themselves warm, right? That's exactly what they're doing. They don't care about the other puppies. They just want to be warm themselves. Doesn't that kind of sum up human nature? It feels like a warm fuzzy, but it's not really one. So we're okay with doing something for somebody else as long as we can benefit from it as well. We could take our motto from that theologian, Shirley MacLaine, who said the most pleasurable journey you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work and love work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Is that what you want? The saying is that if you give a pig and a boy everything that they want, you get a very good pig and a very bad boy. So are we the people that want what they want when they want it? I'm afraid to admit that if I'm honest with myself, it it is more true than not. 
So the question is, what do we want? What do you want? Because it is the object that you want that is the object that you will worship and will be the driving force of your life. The object that you want is the object that you will worship and will be the driving force in your life. So what I want to do in this passage is just compare and contrast two people. That's it. So I'm not going to work through it exegetically. I just want to contrast two people, Judas and Jesus. Judas and Jesus. So what does Judas want? That's our question. What does Judas want? Well, Judas Iscariot was the disciple that betrayed Jesus uh, to the chief priests and the scribes. We know that, right? So what do we know about Judas? Well, we don't have a record of how he came to be a disciple or be one of the 12, but he is consistently listed as one of the 12 disciples. We also know that he was the treasurer of the disciples, but consistently he has seen in a negative light in the Bible. Do we know what motivated him? Well, we know that he was a thief. It tells us in John 12, when a woman came and anointed Jesus with an expensive perfume, he got very angry saying we could have sold that and given it to the poor. But it tells us there in verse six that he used to help himself to the treasury. He used to help himself to the money that was in the treasury. It doesn't seem like this would be enough of a motive for him to betray Jesus. Why would he betray Jesus? What does Judas want? Well, I think part of the answer lies in the general misunderstanding that the disciples had about the Messiah and the kingdom. They believe that the Messiah to come uh, was here to set up an earthly geopolitical kingdom. That's what they genuinely believed about Jesus. They genuinely believed that at some moment, this is what we know, Peter took out his sword, cut off the high priest, the servant of the high priest's ear. He was ready to go. It's time. We are going to overthrow this government. We got Jesus. That was in their thinking. And so you think about Judas. He saw that. He on some level believed that. And so he was getting in on the ground floor because he would have a position of prominence if he could just get in on the ground floor. Probably why he volunteered to be the treasure, to be the helpful one. Um, this would have certainly been attractive to Judas. Uh, but as three years of Jesus' public ministry rolled on, well, it became evident that this wasn't going to happen or it wasn't, it wasn't happening. Things weren't happening the way that he thought they might happen. Perhaps, perhaps another reason might be why he betrayed Jesus. This is a, a second possible reason. Maybe he thought he would be a catalyst for Jesus standing up. Jesus is timid. He doesn't know when the right time is. He's walking with his disciples. But if Judas can be a catalyst, if he can betray him, Jesus will stand up and in power, he will over, overthrow everyone. That's a possible motivation also. We really don't know what his motivation was but one thing we do know, he was all about himself and what he could do to advance his own cause. I don't think anybody would dispute that. 
That's what he was in it for. So he plotted with the chief priests to betray Jesus. Perhaps he's thinking it's a double win. He will get some money from it and he will also cause Jesus to stand up and be the Messiah and overthrow the Jews and especially the Romans. So, you know, you might get a double whammy. Um, but what's really clear is he doesn't give one whit about Jesus or his kingdom. He really wants to advance his own cause. I think that's very, very clear. But what's amazing is, is that Jesus knows this all along. He has this man with him for three years. He knows it all along. And he even predicts Judas' betrayal. John 13, the verse 10 says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. This is when he's washing his disciples' feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said, not everyone was clean. He knows exactly what Judas is about. So we know that Jesus and the disciples are eating the Passover meal. And in the beginning of chapter 13, we see that in his quest to love his disciples, I've already said this, but in his quest to love his disciples, he girds on a towel around his waist and he washed their feet. A tremendous sign of humility. Not even the Jewish servants would do this. This would be a job given to the lowest of the low, the very unimportant people, maybe a Gentile servant of some kind. And then at the table, Jesus becomes much more direct in verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. That's a bold statement. And the disciples are completely stunned. They say in verse 22, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Now look at Judas and his duplicitous nature. I'm actually gonna to read to you from the Matthew account because it's not here in the, in, the, in the John account. But in Matthew 26, verse 24, Jesus saying, the son of man will go just as is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him said, Surely not I, rabbi. And Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Talk about a confrontation, a direct confrontation. Judas, knowing, knowing that he's the one that would betray Jesus, says, surely not I, rabbi. It's all about how he looks. It's all about his getting ahead. He's not going to admit, obviously not admit to that there. In front of the disciples, he's completely duplicitous. Completely duplicitous. His self-centeredness led him to keep up the charade. This is what they call a seared conscience. You know, a conscience that has been resisted so often that it no longer protests. If you do something wrong long enough, your conscience will stop bothering you. It will stop bothering you. That's called a seared conscience. 
Well, the disciples also want to know who it is. Even though he's just said this to Judas, it's like it doesn't compute with them. There's, there's a disconnect. There's, there's, they're not hearing. Of course, they haven't heard Jesus through the entire three years where he's continually predicting his death and they don't get it. They're just putting it into the paradigm they already have. So Peter signals for John, who's sitting right next to Jesus, uh, to ask him who it is. And this is what Jesus answers in verse 36. It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Can it be more obvious? I don't think so. So there's a couple of things here. Jesus directly tells them who will betray him. The disciples don't understand, but think about this. At these dinners, everyone was reclining around a table and they would lie on their left arm. I would think that would be really uncomfortable. Your arm would start getting tired after a while, wouldn't it? Maybe they did at special exercises for the arm. It's not in scripture, but if I could extrapolate a little bit, maybe, uh, but just holding it there. And they would lie next to each other around this table. And so John was probably on this side because he leaned back and he asked Jesus who it was. But here's, here, think about this logically. In order for him to be able to give the bread to Judas, where would Judas have to be? He's probably right on his left. That's the place, one of the places of honor at the dinner. He puts Judas on his left in order to be able to hand him the bread. Can you imagine? Jesus knows that Judas will betray him, but still he gives him a place of honor. This is, this is what Jesus is like. And yet Judas continues in his blindness so much. So it says in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly. That's what Jesus told him. Well, we know it doesn't end well for Judas, right? After Jesus is crucified, he has such great regret that he tries to return the money. They don't want to have the money. He throws it into the temple. He commits, then he commits. He buys a field and he goes and he hangs himself. He kills himself. Big difference between regret and repentance, by the way. You can regret something you did forever. But to say I've sinned against the holy God, that was not in Judas' vocabulary. He went and hung himself. He couldn't deal with the consequences. That's what it's like to see your sin. Most people don't want to look at their sin. That's what it's like to see your sin and not have a recourse for it. It's devastating. It's devastating. Um, so I think the question for us is, we know what Judas wanted what do you want? What do you want? And to what lengths are you willing to go to get it? I'm reminded of this story by someone named John Allen. I think I've shared it here before, but a lady answered the knock on her door to find a man with a sad expression. I'm sorry to disturb you, he said, but I'm collecting money for an unfortunate family in the neighborhood. The husband is out of work. The kids are hungry. The utilities will soon be cut off. And worse, they're going to be kicked out of their apartment if they don't pay the rent by this afternoon. 
Oh, I'll be happy to help, said the woman with great concern, but who are you? I'm the landlord, he replied. (laughs) What a noble deed in it for himself. See, here's the thing. Self-centeredness and love are opposites. Self-centeredness always leads to the alienation of others. Self-ambition always leads to the breakdown of relationship. And yet this is a cultural, this is a cultural reality. It's a, it's a cultural doing for yourself. It is a cultural reality. It is actually encouraged. Robert Bella in his book, Habits of the Heart, says that from the very beginning, the United States has been about self-reliance. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about with self-reliance, but I don't think he's wrong. Self-reliance has as its bedrock that I can do it, I have the power, I have it in me. It's just another form of self-centeredness. There's two songs that Frank Sinatra made very, very famous. You could probably quote them yourself, but they confirm that this is true. They run throughout the fabric of our culture. It runs throughout the fabric of my own heart. Here they are. And now the end is near. I won't sing. And so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it. I did it my way, right? Or the other songs start spreading the news. I'm leaving today, yeah. I wanna be a part of it. New York, New York, these vagabond shoes are longing to stray right through the very heart of it. New York, New York, I wanna wake up in a city that doesn't sleep and find I'm king of the hill, top of the heap, And a little bit later, and find I'm A number one, top of the list, king of the hill, A number one. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it feels good to be a self-made person. It feels good, it feeds us. It feeds our flesh. To call our own shots, to be self-reliant, to promote our own agenda, it feels feels so good. And yet if we learn anything from Judas, we learn that that way of thinking ends in disaster. It ends in disaster. Are you sure you know what you want? You just might get it. You just might get it. Number two, what does Jesus want? Well, Judas and Jesus obviously are opposites. Um, Judas wants status, power, and money, but on his own terms, in his own way, Jesus has status, power, and all the money or riches in the world, but he gladly gives them up so that he can get what he wants. He gladly gave up the splendor of heaven and became a baby in a meager manger in a stable. He gladly grew up poor where he had to work by the sweat of his brow. He gladly opposed the religious leaders uh, that he saw as self-centered. He gladly put himself in harm's way, risking everything to be with the people. He gladly worked himself into exhaustion because he saw the, the people as sheep without a shepherd. He wept over Jerusalem because they were so blind. 
He invested in his disciples by teaching them, by spending time with them, by rebuking them, by asking them questions. He did the hard relational work, the difficult work. Um, And even when they fought amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest, Jesus taught them with loving compassion. His life was devoted to the broken, the wayward, the lost, the sick, the blind, the lame, the demon-possessed. His life was a testament to what he said in John 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And even here at the Last Supper, he lets Judas sit on his left. He washes his feet. He serves him. He gives him warning after warning. It's as if he's giving him an opportunity after opportunity to turn from his ways. Judas is his friend. I think we get an inkling of that. At least that's the way it looks on the surface. It alludes to that. In, in, in verse 18, it says, I'm not referring to all of you. He's talking to the disciples. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now he's quoting from Psalm 41. Psalm 41.9, where King David has felt the betrayal of a very close friend. I think we can make The parallel there, Jesus is quoting David because he's feeling the same thing. This man that has walked with him for three years, they must have had numerous intimate conversations, but Jesus knew what was up all the time. But here it says in verse 41, or Psalm 41, verse nine, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus must be grieving This one that has acted like his close friend for three years is about to betray him. He already has. He's already gotten his money. At least I think he had. Why would Jesus put himself through so much misery when he didn't have to? And then why would he allow them to take him, to torture him, and to put him to death? What did he want? He wants us. He wants us. Does that blow your mind? No hardship would be too hard. No torture would be too painful. No road would be too long. No exhaustion would keep him down. No bickering would dissuade him. No anger against him would make him fade away. No mocking would turn him around until he would shed his blood for every one of yours and my sins. It's the reason he came. He would not be thwarted either by the religious leaders, nor by Judas, nor by whatever sins you and I might have committed. He would not be thwarted. Have you seen Jesus? What is it that you want? See, the only thing that will fulfill our longings, the only one that will lead us to joy unspeakable is Jesus himself. when When we see him as our treasure, we suddenly begin to value others. When he is our true reward, then all rewards begin to fade. What is it that you want? 
Do you want to settle for the latest gadget or for the most money or for the best behaved children or for the highest status or for the most comfort? How shallow, how shallow what is being offered is Jesus himself. What do you want? If what you want is not Jesus, you might get it. You just might get it. And sooner or later, the regret of Judas will come upon you and it'll end in despair. See, Jesus is offering so much more he offers himself. There's a YouTube channel called School of Life where they interact with many ideas. Um, And there's one episode called Machiavelli's Advice for Nice Guys. And it's an interaction with Machiavelli's philosophy. Um, I've read some stuff about Machiavelli, and this is interesting. Uh, In case you don't know who he was, Niccolò Machiavelli was a Renaissance-era philosopher, politician, and writer. And his his writings uh, influenced, greatly influenced, especially political science uh, in in the modern world. Here's here's what they say about Machiavelli. Machiavelli believed that to be effective, political leaders needed to be ruthless and tyrannical, not empathetic and just. His book, The Prince, is a short manual of advice for princes on how not to finish last. And the answer was never to be overly devoted to acting nicely and to know how to borrow every single trick employed by the most dastardly, unscrupulous, and nastiest people who have ever lived. Now, just for full disclosure, there's disagreement on whether this is satirical on the part of of Machiavelli or not. But this next part, I don't think is satirical. I think this is what he actually meant. Machiavelli knew where our counterproductive obsession with acting nicely originated from. The West was brought up on the Christian story of Jesus of Nazareth. He was the very nice man from Galilee who always treated people well. But Machiavelli pointed out an inconvenient detail to this sentimental tale of triumph of goodness through meekness. From a practical perspective, Jesus' life was an outright disaster. This gentle soul was trampled upon and humiliated, disregarded, and mocked. Judged in his lifetime and outside of any divine assistance, he was one of history's greatest losers. This is Machiavelli's point of view, and it is a point of view that's being pushed. Christianity, those who would follow Christ, Christianity is for losers. There's so much other stuff that looks exciting. There's so many things that I could... I could hang my hat on. If I got that, it would be so great. I could just, if I, if I could just achieve this, my life would be so good. And that's the lie. That's the lie. Jesus was hardly a nice guy, by the way. He got crucified because, because he was not nice to the powers that be. But he went to the slaughter like a lamb. What Machiavelli missed 
is that it was the only way for us to receive forgiveness. A perfect sacrifice had to be slain on our behalf. And what Machiavelli refused to acknowledge is that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and then he ascended to his father and he will come again with power and glory, not as a lamb, but as a lion. He will come as a lion. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. What is it that you want? See, the costly way of Jesus where you give up your own ambition and seek his is actually the way, the thing that will fulfill your deepest longings. See, that's the gospel and the gospel changes everything. Let's pray.